Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Let's pray. Our Father, this evening, so thankful that we can come in the name of Jesus. You are the reason we're here, and you're the one that we praise. I pray that you'll still our hearts for just a few moments. Remove the distractions that life provides us so that we can be focused on the preaching of your word. I am so thankful for your love. And I'm thankful for friends. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this evening. Back in the summer, I started to go through a series of sermons out of the book of Acts uh, at Bible Baptist Church. And uh, I'm just a few sermons ahead of where we are this evening. But the reason I went on this journey was twofold. First, I wanted the churches that I pastor to know what God can do with the church that is in one accord. The phrase, one accord of appears five times in the first five chapters of Acts, all related to the church at Jerusalem. The phrase itself means to share the same passion. Based upon the context of how Luke records this church at Jerusalem being in one accord, we know that they shared the same passion when it came to praying. Shared the same passion when it came to following the spiritual leadership of the church. Shared the same uh, passion when it came to evangelism and shared the same passion when it came to discipleship. You can't undermine the significance of a church being in one accord, whether a church is 15 or 120. God can do great things with a church that's in one accord, a church that shares the same passion. In Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, we find Paul writing, he says that, When you come to the house of God to worship God, it should be with one mind and one mouth glorifying God. Whenever there's dissension within the church, whenever there's discord within the church, whenever there is people at odds with other people in the church so that the church isn't sharing the same passion or is of one mind, then the worship of God fails to happen. The second significance of a church being in one accord, particularly if you read the book of Acts as it relates to the church of Jerusalem. The church being in one accord allowed the church to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. More than once, three times in the first few chapters of Acts, we read how the church was filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 6, we read multiple times how a group of men or men was full of the Holy Ghost. I sometimes wonder how often ministry takes place within the Lord's churches without being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit of God that enables ministry to have divine power and divine success. Without the filling of the Holy Spirit, ministry may have some degree of success, but it will just be fleshly success, short-term success, weak success. The second reason I wanted to go through the book of Acts, I pastor a church in a very rural part of the state. The state is the county that my church is in, more of a dairy farm county. And we've attempted to do outreach ministry in the past without much success. 
I wanted to encourage the churches that I pastor that the greatest outreach ministry doesn't take place three or four or five times a year. The greatest outreach ministry takes place, greatest outreach ministry takes place when we go out in the normal routine of life sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not opposed to VBS or youth outings. I'm not opposed to revival meetings or nursing home ministries. But the greatest, most effective outreach ministry will hinge upon the relationships that God allows you to have through the normal course of your day and in the relationships that you have, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our text this evening. Acts chapter 8, verse number 4. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. I want to see a handful of things this evening. First, they that were scattered. Whenever you're reading or studying through a historical narrative genre of the Bible, it's really important that you find out how the author got to the place where he was. There isn't an accident in historical narratives. So it's important to know, how did the church of Jerusalem get to Acts chapter 8, verse number 4? Early on in the book of Acts, we read how the church of Jerusalem enjoyed much success. The much success was built upon the fact that they shared the same passion and were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 2, God saved 3,000 souls. They're baptized, added to the church, and continue steadfastly and the apostles' doctrine, fellowshipping, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Sometime after Acts chapter 2, Peter and John went to the temple, and while at the temple, they preached not just in the name of Jesus, but the subject matter was Jesus Christ. And it's unknown for sure how many people were saved during that episode, but at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, we read that God has saved 5,000 men. The 5,000 men doesn't include the women and children that were converted to Christ. So it's very possible that by the time we get to Acts chapter 4, this church in Jerusalem had grown from 120 to well over 10,000 people. However, with this success came persecution. The Sanhedrin would be Israel's supreme court for all religious matters. Not much different from our supreme court, the Sanhedrin was divided amongst two political parties, the Sadducees on the left and the Pharisees on the right. Rarely did the Supreme Court of Israel ever unanimously agree on any one topic, except when it came to Jesus' ministry or the teaching and preaching of Jesus' name. So with the success that the church of Jerusalem had in Acts chapter 2 and 3, the Sanhedrin stepped in and ruled that it was unconstitutional to teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ. The church is at a crossroad. What to do? They prayed. Arguably the most painful yet successful prayer since the Garden of Gethsemane. They prayed that God would give them boldness and courage to continue preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. After all, as Peter stated before the Sanhedrin, the only name under heaven whereby we can be saved is the name of Jesus. I say it's the most painful prayer because their boldness would usher in a period of sustained pain. The Sanhedrin would intensify the persecution. 
the intensification of the persecution would go from leaders to lay people, from temporary imprisonment to torture and martyrdom. A snapshot of this persecution occurs in Acts chapter 8, verse number 3, where Luke records for us, as for Saul, Saul was the face of this persecution. He made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. In short, Saul, along with his cohorts, broke into Christian homes, dragged their parents, Christian parents, out of their homes, separating the family, imprisoning them. Later in Acts and with Paul's epistles, we find out that many of those that were drugged from their homes never returned home because they died for their faith. So how did this church handle the intensification of persecution? They handled it with verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. The reason they were scattered abroad was persecution. The reason they had success. Verse 4, brothers and sisters, it takes us into a brand new era of Christianity. It is the globalization of the gospel. It started in verse 4. You can see how their prayer of God help us to be better and courageous launched the greatest missionary effort that has ever been undertaken on planet Earth. A missionary effort that hasn't stopped. The reason you're converted this evening is because of Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Acts chapter 8 verse 4 doesn't occur if the church wasn't in one accord and if they weren't focused on being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. They were scattered. They were scattered abroad preaching the word. Now there are two words in the New Testament for scattered. The first word for scattered has the idea of indiscriminately scattering something away from you. When I was a kid growing up and went in place, most of my family smoked. My mom smoked, my stepdad smoked, my siblings smoked, my friends smoked. And often I would get smoke blown into my face, sometimes intentionally, other times unintentionally. But what I did was I stuck my hand up in my face and just went like this. I didn't care where the smoke went. I didn't care if it went to the left of me, to the right of me. I really didn't care if the smoke invaded someone else's breathing space, so long as it wasn't in my breathing space. That's indiscriminately scattering something. The second word for scatter in the New Testament carries the idea of a farmer who strategically and purposely scatters his seed in the field. Not just any field, but his field, and a field that is prepared to blossom with the seed that's been planted. I live in a rural part of the state, and I am not a farmer. I don't even try to play one behind the pulpit. I just don't know anything about farming. And it's honestly, it just isn't something that drives my interest. But I've never yet seen a farmer plant seed on the blacktop. I've never once seen a farmer plant seed on the sidewalk. 
I've never once seen a farmer plant seed in a, in a field that doesn't belong to him. Nor have I ever seen a farmer plant seed in a field that may belong to him, but it's not conducive for growth. A farmer strategically and purposely places the seed in the right place for growth. The idea of Acts 8.4, and they were scattered abroad, carries with it the second meaning that I just mentioned. It is God as the farmer who purposefully and strategically scatters his children into various fields so that that field can blossom for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not here by accident. God wants you to blossom in the field you're in. You've been scattered here by a strategic and purposeful God. To blossom your field. Years ago, for those of us who have been here since like the early 90s, like, well, Paulette's been here since Moses. But in the 90s, Brother Head had this story that he gave. It was a story that he gave like a thousand times, right? It was a pastor friend of his or a pastor acquaintance of his who had contracted AIDS early in the, late in the 80s or early in the 90s. He was bitter and angry, bitter and angry with God and bitter and angry being in the AIDS wards, AIDS ward with the patients there because most of the patients were there because of, uh, of a sinful lifestyle, a wicked culture. And here he was, he contracted it through a blood transfusion. He was angry and mad and bitter. It took some time before eventually God broke his heart and this man realized this was the field that God had him in. So that that field, that ward, can blossom for the glory of God. There are times when I struggle with depression. I believe that's the field that God has me in from time to time so that I can better minister to those who struggle with depression. Whether you're working with the Waterworks, working at Formica, whether you're retired or working at UDF, I don't know where anyone else works here, I'd say it, but insurance, whatever it is Tim does, I don't know. I, I just know he works in his pajamas. Whatever field you're in, there's a reason. The health issues that Sister Pamela Green has gone through, there's a field there that God wants her to blossom in. My daughter having a CFC syndrome baby, there's a field there God wants her and her husband to blossom in. How do we blossom in the field that God has us in? That's the second part of this verse. They shared. And they that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. What did they do while they were in this new field of theirs? They went preaching the word. The word preach means, or preaching means good news. In fact, it's translated over 20 times in the New Testament alone as the gospel. The first time this word appears in the New Testament is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse number 5, 
where Jesus speaks to John's disciples to convince John that he was the Messiah. And he says, and the gospel had the poor, and the poor had the gospel preached unto them. So this word, preaching, carries the idea of something that's fantastic news, and that news that is communicated to other people. What is the gospel? What is the good news? That in the face of bad news, Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. See, the gospel itself isn't bad news. It's the good news that solves the bad news. Maybe think about it this way. How often have you preached the gospel to someone within the last month in the field that God gave you? And you might think, wait a minute, I'm not a preacher. It says preaching. Well, there are multiple words translated preach or preaching in the New Testament. In fact, just the next story, we find Philip, he goes to Samaria and he's a preach and he's preaching the gospel. That word preaching there carries the idea of being a herald. But this word preaching in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, carries the idea of sharing the gospel message. As they were going to strange fields, new fields, rebuilding their lives, finding a place to live and an occupation to support their family, they went sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. One a preacher put it this way. He said, when you read preaching the word, you can easily paraphrase that by saying gospeling the gospel. They went gospeling from the gospel, preaching from God's word. How faithful have we been gospeling the gospel? We criticize news agencies for being negative. Their ratings are driven by negativity. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't watch the news. I'm just saying a fact of sta- a statement of fact, the news agencies are negative. We have the opportunity, brothers and sisters, to reverse the trend. We have the opportunity to express good news through our life, and through our mouths. We have a phenomenal blessing to reverse the trend. To say, not all is bad. There are good news out there. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, they shouldn't have been there, but they're there with a bunch of men who deserved to be there, and they stunk. In that environment, they became a beacon of good news. The Apostle Paul, on the day of Pentecost, he preached. And before he preached, if you recall the story, the the church spoke in tongues, not unearthly tongues, but earthly tongues. The people were confused and asked, what do these tongues mean? Peter answers and says, it should cause fear because these tongues speak of judgment coming. You're in trouble. 
And in the face of the bad news, Peter says in verse 9 or 10 of Acts 2, Wherefore, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. The rest of his sermon explains who the Lord is. Jonah had good news for Nineveh, didn't he? The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh was because he knew God had good news for them. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's so sad because here in America, none of us are everywhere and we're living our lives like Jonah. Not communicating the good news with people. Now, we are spokespeople of good news. Paul says in 2 Corinthians how that we're ambassadors for Christ. We are spokespeople for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we need to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. Isn't hope good news? The doctor isn't always hopeful, but Christians can be hopeful. One pastor puts it this way. Satan's persecution of the church at Jerusalem was meant to stop the good news from being declared. Yet the persecution became the pathway to globalize the good news. Satan works for God, not the other way around. Satan worked for God and Job, and Satan worked for God in Acts chapters 7 and 8. Satan just didn't know it. I'm glad we serve a sovereign God who is in control. He doesn't have to ask anyone permission. And his wisdom is so great, so infinite, that he can use all the various events that happen in life and coordinate these events that will one day lead to the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ. That's good news. Why was preaching the gospel so important for these Christians? Consider for just a moment. They had to find jobs. They needed a home to live in. All important stuff. Don't want to dismiss that importance. Yet why was preaching the gospel so important for these folks? Let me submit two reasons. First, because eternity mattered for these Christians. Unlike the Sadducees who didn't believe in hell, these Christians believed there was a real hell. And unlike the Pharisees who thought the Jews were self-righteously inheriting the kingdom of God, they believed all people were sinful and needing Jesus Christ, the good news, the gospel. The second reason was they believed that Jesus would come soon. Whether you're reading James or Paul's epistles or Peter's epistles, the apostles of Jesus believed in an imminent return of Jesus Christ. To whatever degree that is, and I thought that since 2,000 years have passed, we've become no different than the days of Noah where people just wondered, Noah, you've been preaching for 120 years and nothing has happened. 
Often I've heard Christians say this. I've said it myself. If I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, next week, next month, maybe I would be more engaging with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the early Christians believed that he could come back tomorrow, next week, next month, or next year. Therefore, as they went rebuilding their lives, they went preaching the word, declaring the gospel. They were gospelers of the gospel. Why is the gospel good news? You ever, have you ever thought about that? Why is the gospel good news? Well, one, the gospel's good news, based upon Acts 20 and 24, the gospel's good news because the gospel of Jesus Christ opens the pathway to experience the grace of God. No one can experience the grace of God without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how can anyone believe this wonderful story, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and get to the place where they confess Jesus to be both Lord and Savior if they've not heard the gospel? I believe I've said this before here at this church, but don't think that because we live in America, most Americans have heard the gospel. I would argue just the opposite. Most Americans have heard a polluted, corrupted, convoluted gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear the good news. The second reason the gospel is, the good news is, because the gospel is fixated on Jesus. It's not fixated on man. The next story opens up with Philip going to Samaria, a particular city in Samaria. While there, he, he's preaching the gospel. But the city or the town had been bewitched by a sorcerer named Simon. Simon's theology was to preach and teach about himself. Philip's message was to teach and preach about the kingdom of God and someone else, Jesus Christ. How different of a message the Samaritans heard. When Philip came, our society isn't any different, brothers and sisters. Our society is self-centered focus. We're just interested in us and our passions and our desires and what happens to us. Arguably, this is the most selfless culture in America's history. Athletes are just worried about themselves. Owners are just worried about themselves. Union workers are just worried about themselves. Corporate America is just worried about themselves. As Christians, our sermon, our message, our life is, it's not about us. This past weekend, the NFL crowned a new champion, the Kansas City Chiefs. The Kansas City Chiefs now have the right to declare themselves the best, the champions. We're in first place. And yet for Christians, our message is Jesus is the champ. He's the best. He's in first place. How different of a message. Do you want to be counterculture? Just preach Jesus. So the gospel is loved by God because it's fixated on Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, I kind of paraphrased it, but I'll just read it. 
Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Here's the gospel. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The gospel. You don't find any other person mentioned in the gospel other than Jesus. It's easy to say church growth isn't happening because the pastor or because a deacon or because a trustee. And I would argue the reason church growth doesn't happen is because the church isn't gospeling the gospel. I said this at Bible Baptist. If you authentically love this church, you would be the best message this church has to offer to the community. Because you would be busy gospeling the gospel. Gospeling the gospel as you play sports. Gospeling the gospel as you went to work. Gospeling the gospel as you engaged in community activities. We have uh, just a little towns everywhere, right? And, and you have town hall meetings Probably not much different than Wenton Place. I don't know if it still has, but Wenton Place used to have a weekly or a monthly like community meeting, right? And in those meetings, you're gospel in the gospel. If the gospel's good news, then why do people hate the good news? Why do we have to tell people the good news? If it's good news. And why is more often than not the good news rejected by people? People don't like criticism, right? Even the person who says, I want constructive criticism, really doesn't enjoy criticism. As soon as you criticize them, even if it's constructively, their defense flags will just fly high, right? I mentioned earlier, the gospel isn't bad news, but because the gospel exists, it means bad news is here. See, if there was no bad news, then the gospel wouldn't be good news. It would just be better news. The reason the gospel exists is because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God created man to glorify God. Sin prevents man from glorifying God. So at man's best state, all they can do is radiate the darkness of Satan. That's why the gospel is needed. But that's why people hate the gospel. Because they don't want to view their sins as something deadly and detrimental in their relationship with God. Second, for there is none righteous, no, not one. I love reading the story of Noah, how he built an ark for the saving, to the saving of his family. And yet Noah didn't build the ark because he was authentically a good person. The reason Noah built the ark was because he had found grace in the presence of God. Abraham wasn't good. Noah wasn't good. David wasn't good. All those men found grace with God. 
Ruth. I love the story of Ruth. She wasn't good until she discovered grace in the presence of God. People don't want to be told that their essence is wicked. That they are absolutely, unequivocally incapable of doing anything good. Doesn't matter how good a philanthropist may be. An unconverted philanthropist can do no good. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, describes man's condition. Paul says, and you hath he quickened. Here's man's condition. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children to disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. That word conversation means lifestyle. In times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Our condition is pitiful. It's dire. It's not that we're getting a beep on the EKG machine every now and again. The EKG machine had flatlined. There's nothing. And those three verses, Paul describes people who are unconverted as children of disobedience and children of wrath. We do what our Father does. And you might think, wait, 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 wait. I know a lot of lost people who are pacifists. They're not children of wrath. Oh, they're children of wrath when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. Henry Morris was a great Christian who helped the Christian community with understanding science. I believe he was maybe one of the founders of the Institute for Creation Research. I was reading his commentary on the book of Revelation. I think he's written a, a couple commentaries, one Genesis, one Revelation, and I think the Genesis flood, and maybe other works. When you get to the scene where heaven and earth flees at the presence of Jesus at the great white throne judgment, Henry Morris goes into this law, this law of mass energy conservation. Well, that threw me for a loop. I didn't know what mass energy conservation was from Adam. But I'm an inquisitive kind of fellow, so I spent the next hour or so Googling what does it mean. In essence, what mass en energy conservation means is you take a piece of coal that has mass. You burn that coal, it turns into gas. Even though at atomic, even though structurally it's changed, it has the same amount of mass. Energy. You throw a ball up in the air. The ball goes up into the air with kinetic energy. Now, we can't really see this because it happens too fast, but there's a split moment in time when that ball stops. All because it stopped, it doesn't mean the, ener the ball lacks the energy it had going up into the air. It's just the energy had changed from kinetic energy to potential energy. 
eventually that ball will come back down with some potential gravitational energy or something like that. And then possibly change into kinetic energy again. But what I want to focus on this evening for just a moment, then I'm done, is when it stops in midair. Let's pretend it just hangs there for 20 minutes. All that ball is, all that ball has is just potential energy. Potential energy never could. A lot of Christians are sitting in their pews Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, just storing potential energy because they're never using God's empowered Holy Spirit in this illustration in a kinetic way to gospel in the gospel. They're just that ball, just right there, not doing anything, hung in midair. I love sports, and occasionally there's an athlete who throws uh, their career away. Maybe drugs, maybe poor behavior, maybe poor work ethics. And when they're spoken about, talked about, or written about, it's the potential talent they had. Christian, don't throw away what God has gifted you with. Use what God has given you, the field that he's placed you to declare the good news of the gospel. Don't be the ball that's stuck in midair with just potential energy. Let's pray. Our Father, in the name of Jesus, I am so thankful we have good news In fact, we have the best of the good news. There isn't any good news that tops the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll give us wisdom on how to blossom in the field you have us in. Give us direction. Give us the words and give us power. I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand this morning, this evening. I don't think I've preached that long.